regula regulations. If you want to scan the QR, you can download the app. I want to encourage you to do so. Lots of good stuff. And Shelly's got a gift for you. If you downloaded the app and you didn't get Shelly's gift, you need to go and see Shelly. She's going to give you a gift. No, they're going to come right to you. They're going to say, we want Shelly's gift. So Shelly has something she wants to give you. Thank you so much, Phoenix. Uh, so we just, uh, we did our, um, we did our uh, Commitment Sunday last week. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, we had a pretty big Sunday last week. Uh, we had a Commitment Sunday for um, uh, Elevate is on a mission to buy land. So we're going to buy property sometime in the next 18 months. And our goal is to raise a half a million dollars. And you know how much we raised last week? Anybody know? Anybody know? $256,000. That's right. In one week. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So uh, if you're not a part of this, we want you to be a part of this. You can collect. Uh, we have a hard card over there if you want to fill it out. Uh, and if uh, our online family as well, uh, you can do it off the app. So if online family, you can connect on the app and you can fill out uh, the card, the commitment card. It's an 18-month commitment. We're asking you to go above and beyond your, app, your, your regular giving and support this work so that we can establish something that outlives us, such as the prayer, is it not? We can put something in the ground. We can light a light that's never been lit and, lit and uh, bring Jesus to the city in a new way. So we're going to continue with the theme. We're going to talk a little bit about vision today and probably going to talk about vision for the next few weeks other than Christmas Eve. And uh, it's a good time to talk about vision. Do you know why? Do you know what next month is? Anybody know? January what? First? Did, what happens at New Year's? What do we do at New Year's? Anybody know? Nobody does any? You guys don't do New Year's resolutions at all? Yeah. You don't join the gym for three months? You don't sign the annual contract and actually show up from January till March, and then you stop showing up after March. That's usually it. Yeah, so that's, that's about it. But uh, so it's a good time because God is a God of vision. Even the birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of God's plan and God's vision. When Adam and Eve fell, when they surrendered their authority and their dominion to a fallen angel, the Lord showed up and he gave a hopeful vision. Say it with me, no matter how dark it is. Jesus always has a hopeful vision. It was super dark. When Adam and Eve fell, darkness came into the earth. And the Lord had a hopeful vision. And he said, I will put enmity between her seed and your seed. He will bruise your heel, but you, you will, he will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. God had a vision of a fulfilling purpose, a hopeful future. And Christmas is actually the, 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 uh, a memorial to the fulfillment of God's vision of sending the Messiah that would crush the serpent's head. So God is a visionary God. He's a dreamer. He's a dreamer, and he's a God that loves visions. One of the first commitments in the book of Acts, when the, when the believers came, uh, Peter quoted the book of Joel, and he said, your, young, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young will see visions, your old will dream dreams. And so the kingdom was birthed prophetically. The first thing that was released to the church was, a prophet, was the prophetic and dreams and visions. So it's part of our nature as Christians to be able to have dreams and be able to have visions. It tells us in Proverbs verse chapter 28, it says, Where there is no vision, say it with me, where there is no vision, the people perish. But those who follow the ways of the Lord, happy are they. Proverbs 28, verse 18. And so where it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. What it's saying is where there is no God-given revelation, 
where God has not revealed something to the future, where people don't have a revelation of the future, they perish. Well, in what way do you perish? People say, well, I didn't physically perish. I've been doing nothing for years, and I'm not dead yet. Well, you perish in your potential. You perish in your purpose, and you perish in the power that you've been given to bring forth in the earth. When you don't have a vision, you will perish. If you don't have a vision for your marriage, your marriage is going to perish. If you don't have a vision for your, for your business, your business is going to perish. If you don't have a vision for your finances, chances are your finances are going to perish. If you don't have a vision for yourself, you're, it's going to happen to you there. Even, even your, your health and well-being. If you don't have a vision for your health and well-being, how many knows this one's true? We can all live this one out, right? I don't have a vision for what I'm supposed to eat. I just eat anything they put in front of me. Well, that, that works out really well when you're 20 years old, Rudy, but it doesn't work out when you get older, right? I used to be able to eat Big Macs and it would never be a problem. Now it's like the Big Mac, and when I eat a Big Mac, I haven't eaten a Big Mac in years, but if I eat anything close to that, I mean, forget about it. When I was 20, I'd be like, oh, I can eat Big Macs. It's not a problem. You have to have a vision for your, for your health and for all of those things. You perish in your potential, your power, and your purpose. Say it with me. A vision, a vision is the ability to see past where I am and where I have been. We have the ability as people, we're visionaries and dreamers. We can see past where we are and we can see past where we have been. And most of us need that vision. Because we come from a broken past. Your past is not who you are, and where you are is not who you're going to be. Does that make sense to you? One of the things that has to happen for vision, and we got to understand some things, we have to understand that God has a vision for our lives. We say it like this, you're created on purpose with a purpose. Ephesians would say it, like, say it this way, that you were created for good works with God has prepared beforehand, before the foundations of the world. God has prepared good works for you. You're created for a reason. There's something about your life that God has created you for, and he's created you for good works. Good works, something good. Something good that you're supposed to bring forth, ergon, energy, something that you're supposed to release into the world. Jeremiah would say it this way. I know the plans that I have for you. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. You say, how does the Lord see me? Well, he tells us how he sees you. He says, my thoughts towards you are for peace and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. We oftentimes, we stop there, but it goes further. It says, then you will call upon me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and, I will and you will find me. Say it with me. When I search with all of my heart, the Lord says, I will be found of you and I will bring you out of your captivity. What this verse is given towards Jeremiah. So what's going on here? You see this in Jeremiah. You see a very parallel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were um, exile prophets. So uh, Ezekiel was pretty much in the exile from, for most of the time. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem when it fell, was dragged to Babylon with the captives. So he was among the captives. And so Jeremiah was prophesying in the first part of his book saying, hey guys, you need to follow the Lord and you're following your own path. And if you don't follow this, this nation is going to fall and we're going to go into captivity. And they're like, shut up, dude. And they threw him in stocks. They threw him in a pit, right? And so Jeremiah didn't have a lot of success, but the Lord told him, you're going you're gonna to proclaim to these people. Actually, the ministry to these people went on for over 100 years. You say God's not patient. God's extremely patient. He spends 100 years trying to tell him to turn it around. 
and they wouldn't listen to him. Wouldn't listen to him. And so Jeremiah gets, gets beat up by the people. Now he's in the exile. Now the Lord's giving him a message of hope. And so now he brings this message to these captives. And the Lord says to them, he says, you, you must call upon me. The message of hope is related to prayer. And the prayer is actually related to a word that is almost become extinct within the modern church called repentance. Repentance. We don't even use the word repent anymore. It's shocking. I said it one time in front of a pastor. He said, well, I'd edit that word. I'm like, what word are you editing? He said, repent. I'm like, why are we editing the word repent? It's not set. You know, when Jesus came out of the wilderness and he came and began his ministry, what was the first word he used? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Very first thing, the kingdom is initiated with repentance. We come into this kingdom through repentance. Our life is changed and transformed through repentance. Repentance is when we're off the track, we repent and get back on the track, right? Repentance is teshuva, return to the Lord, come out of the culture, come unto me. Change the way that you think. Don't, that's metanoia. So come back to me and stop thinking. Don't act like them. Don't work like them. Don't live like them. You are in this world. You are not of it. You do not participate. You are in the kingdom. You are not in the culture. You're not to think that way. So teshuva is two words. First word is, to, or repentance is teshuva, which is Hebrew, come back. And the Greek word is metanoia, which means think differently. Romans 12.1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Metanoia, don't see this way, see it this way. And so God is telling these people in the book of Jeremiah, he's saying, look, when you guys figure out that you put yourself here and you decide to call upon the Lord, he'll hear you. But until you decide to call upon the Lord, the Lord's not going to hear you. And then the other part is, and you call on him with all your heart. When you stop complaining and stop blaming God for your current circumstances, and you stop shaking your fist, and you want him with your heart, you don't just want his hand of deliverance, you want his heart of his nature, he'll be found of you. But until you, can't, until you come to the understanding that you have put yourself in this position, which they did... <laughs> And until you stop seeking his hand and start seeking his face or his heart, you want to find the Lord, he's near to you. But you have to want his nature and his heart. You not want the things that he simply does for you. Right? It's like first responder. We put ourselves in, the, in, the, in a mess and we call Jesus 911. And here comes the, you know, Jesus comes and brings deliverance and gets us out of it. But his, God, his job in our life, he does not want a relationship with you based upon merely being a first responder. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know his heart. He wants you to connect to his heart. He wants you to be a part of that. This is one of the messages that he's saying to them. And he's saying to them, look, God will bring you out of the captivity. You put yourself in this mess. If you will return to the Lord, he'll get you out of the mess. If you will seek his heart and come back to the road and develop a related nature with him, you'll know him. He'll be found of you. you will, he won't be foreign to you. He'll, you'll know him because he wants to be known. And so God wants to do that. You know, verse keeps coming to me. It's like um, uh, through a man's actions, he brings his life into calamity, yet his heart rages against the Lord. <laughs> we do things outside of his kingdom and we bring all of this mess into our lives and then we shake our hands at him and go you how could you do this to me yeah? and that's where these people were at 
And Jeremiah was challenging them to say, hey, look, why don't you guys try to figure out what went wrong here? Right? Stop blaming Jesus and stop and look at, look at the choices that you've made. And so there was a vision, of, uh, for, a vision is clarity accompanied with intentional action. God's going to give them a vision. He wants to give them a vision. He wants to show them a hope and a future. God's like, I will give you a vision out of this mess. He always has a vision out of your mess. He has a vision out of, up, over, and through. He has something for you. Even if you're in a bad spot and if you're in a good spot, he's always got more. There's always another level. He's got more. A vision is clarity accompanied by intentional action, right? Who's a, Thomas Edison. I was like, who's the inventor? Thomas Edison said, a vision without intentional action is nothing more than delusion. If you have a vision and you don't have any action accompanied with it, it's just a delusion. You ha- a vision must be accompanied with intentional action. What Jeremiah was challenging these guys to do was remember who they are, remember who Jesus is, to clean up the issues of their past, recognize and see so that they don't repeat the same mistakes, understand how they got there, set their hearts towards him, not other things, not themselves, set their hearts towards the Lord, be willing to, and be willing to leave the place that they're at. God said, I'll turn it around for you. I'll turn it all around. I'll turn it all around. A lot of people, they, don't, they want a vision from God, but they don't understand how, how God gives vision, why he gives a vision. They want a vision that's kind of like related to what they want for their life rather than coming to God in a submitted state, saying, Father, I know you've created me for something. I'm not sure what I'm created for. I have some ideas, but I need you to show me who I am, what I am, and why I am, and what my purpose is in this world. This is how you come to him. You don't come to him and we, we you know, I, I listen, I listen to a lot of messages. I, I don't listen to him very long. As soon as I hear this, I'm like, well, pff. you know, it's like Jesus is getting on your agenda. Jesus is about your best life now. I'm, like, I'm all in. I like best life now. I like the whole concept of best life now. But my best life now comes when my life is in him. Not when he's getting on. I'm trying to get Jesus on my vision. Jesus is never going to get on my vision. He just isn't. This is why there's such frustration to that message, because that message does not translate. God doesn't operate that way. He's not about your vision. He's about his vision. He's not about your kingdom. He's about his kingdom. And he says it pretty clearly. Seek first the kingdom of of God and what is right to him, not what is right to you. Seek first his kingdom, not your kingdom. Seek first what is right to him, not what is right to you. And then everything will come your way. You want it to come your way? God's like, it's all going to come your way. But it's designed not in narcissism. It's designed in submission. In him we live, move, and have our being. Not about me, all about you. I'm not designed to be worshipped. He is. He's the only one worthy. I'm designed to be a worshiper, not a worshipee. I'm designed to follow him, not him follow me. It's just interesting, the parallels here. That messaging, that it, just, it's, it creates a tremendous amount of frustration because that, that, that messaging will not manifest. We want a kingdom that manifests or comes forth. So we see the same kind of parallel with a vision with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the, the cup holder to the king in the book of Nehemiah. So Jeremiah, they're exiled. 
So Jeremiah's pre-exile, Jeremiah's in the middle of the exile, and Nehemiah's on the back end when God was sending them back to the land. He was giving them back the land. They were kicked out of the land for 70 years. The Lord said, 70 years, you guys are going to go in time out, put you a little in the naughty corner, you know, for time out. They're going to be out of the land for, for 70 years. After 70 years, I'll bring you back. So Jeremiah, Nehemiah's at the, on the backside when God is returning them to the land. And so Jeremiah, Nehemiah is, um, was one of the exiles. And so the Babylonians took the best, the Babylonians and the Persians, they took the best of the nations that they captured and they integrated the best and the most intelligent into their culture. And so you see Hebrews in very prominent positions, like Daniel was in a very prominent position. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see these different people that were in very high-level positions within the Persian and the uh, Babylonian government. Christians shouldn't be in government. Well, I don't know about that. Is there all, Christians are all in government in the Old Testament. I mean, they're everywhere. So they were in government in, in, uh, in this position. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. So he's in a very high-level position, and he's seeing that the, the, Jew, the, the Persian Artaxerxes had led the Jews go home, and so they went home to build first the temple and, um, and the, the, the outer walls of the city. He allowed them to go and rebuild that, and so the Hebrew people had gone back. Of 3 million Jews in Babylon, only 50,000 returned, 50,000. You have millions of people. They came, they multiplied themselves back out. They grew to a very dense population while they were in exile. And when he went back, Ezra went first. Ezra took the first load of people with him. And the total number of Hebrews that went back was only 50,000 people. God put a call to rebuild, an, uh, uh, to rebuild his land. God put a call out to his people to put something significant in the earth to reestablish a worship center at the, at the center of where he, did, he wanted it. And only 50,000 of the people heard it. A fraction of the people responded. A fraction. It's unbelievable. It's the same thing today. We see 95% of Christians do zero. Nothing. Nine point, I don't care. I showed you last week that small churches under, under 200 people are more effective than megachurches. It's a statistical fact. You know, megachurches are cooler, but they're not effective. You know, they got Ferraris on the stage and pastors that flip on bungee cords. I'm going to show you guys some videos sometimes. You think I'm lying. There's like dudes that like, they're like flipping on bungee cords. And Jesus came down and he was like flipping around like on a bungee cord. He's preaching while he's flipping in the air on a bungee cord. I'm like, for real, bro, for real, you know. So it's cooler, but it's not necessarily effective. God has called us to be effective. 9.5% of all Christians, 95% do nothing. Statistics, only 5%. 18% of Christians give the full tithe. That doesn't matter what the denomination is. Presbyterian, Episcopalian, uh, Baptist, uh, Assemblies of God, Charismatic, doesn't matter what spiritual flavor they are. Statistic, less than 20% of the Christian honors the Lord in obedience with the full tithe. It's just, that's just a fact. And we wonder why the kingdom doesn't work in our lives. We wonder, less than 6% have read their Bible from cover to cover. Can you believe that? Less than 6% of Christians that love God, follow God, believe the Bible's real, have ever read it. I mean, if you look at those statistics alone, it answers every one of our problems. We don't know the Word of God. I'm not saying you don't have to be a theologian, but you need to have a working knowledge of the Scripture you need to have a framework or some kind of working knowledge. 
You got to have a little bit of something there. 94, 96%, 94% of Christians have never read their Bible. Fact, 18% tithe, you know, 95% do nothing, nothing. The church is supported by volunteers. It's less, and no matter how big the church is, supported by less than 5% of its congregation are the volunteers. Just a fact. It's a fact. And we wonder why the kingdom doesn't activate. And we wonder why the church is so minimalized. The fact that we're effective at all with those numbers is surreal. The fact that we can do anything with that, with that minimal amount is, is amazing. What would happen if we actually got that number up to 30% or 40%? What would happen then? God help us that we actually get half the Christians involved in the kingdom. What if 50% of Christians actually got involved? What if 50% of believers actually did the things that God said? What would happen in the earth? Oh, we got all these problems. We got all these problems. Yeah, because the problem is internal. The solution is the church, the ecclesia. But Jesus can't even get his own people on the right page. He can't even move his own people forward. We have excuse after excuse after excuse. And here's the thing. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to help you out. There's plenty of people that will tell you it's okay. In the last days, the Christians will not endure sound doctrine. They won't want to hear it. They don't want to hear stuff like this. The Bible says they will heap up, which means the majority of the teachers will teach the believer what they want to hear. Not what God says, but what they want to hear. Because the people won't endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear that. Well, how dare you, pastor, tell me I'm supposed to give? How dare you? How dare you, pastor, tell me I'm supposed to get involved? How dare you? How dare you tell me that I'm supposed to submit and surrender my life to Jesus? How dare you tell me that? I like the message that says Jesus is all about me. That's the message I prefer. I like a message that doesn't require anything of me except for me to show up and look cool on Sunday morning and be in with the in crowd. This is how we teach, guys. This is, this is, this is the America. So I have to share this. This second service, so I'm going to share it. It's a little looser. I was at an apostolic conference in Dallas. 250 apostolic leaders from around the world, all over the world. And one of the narratives that the people said, they said, we need a strong American church. This was one of the things they were saying. But they said, what American churches are exporting is weak and narcissistic. This isn't coming from Pastor Kevin standing here in Miami, Florida. This is coming from people from around the world and saying that the influence that's coming out of America towards the world is weak and narcissistic. It's all about you. It's all about yourself. It's all about, it's, it has nothing to do with kingdom, has very little to do with the gospel at all. The gospel is designed to manifest in power. The gospel is designed to transform culture. Transform culture. Do we have evidence of this? All over the place. Brazil, I don't know anybody here is Brazilian. Anybody here Brazilian? No? Brazil has had a crazy Revival and an awakening that's almost transforming the entire nation. And do you know what the you know what the message is? Repentance and power. It's not 
your best life now, people of Brazil. It's not that message. Jesus is your champion. It's, that's not the message. It's not about Jesus is all about you. That, that nation is being lit on fire through that. And I've said it before, and you'll see it. Europe, watch what happens in Europe in the next 10 years. I'm telling you, people are going to go, look at the revival that happened in Europe. Revival, Europe is going to light up. It's going to go, how do you know? I've been there. I see what they're doing. I listen to the leaders. And those leaders, those apostolic leaders in these countries, don't talk like Americans. They're not talking like, they're not preaching this crap that we preach in this country. They're not. They're not. They're not at all. They're on their knees and they're saying, Europe will be saved. They're sacrificing. They're committed. They're com- they bring together, even if it's small groups of people, they're hungry. They're hungry. And they want to see their culture changed. And they want to see their nation changed. In America, we're so inconvenienced. Oh, I got to go to church. Oh, didn't I go last week? Oh, I don't know. The Dolphins, what time's the Dolphin game? This is America. Oh, I'll just listen online. Oh, I don't, don't ask anything of me. Don't ask anything of me. Don't require anything of me. Is, did Jesus say that? What did he say? If anyone comes after me, they must what? What's the first thing he said? Come on. When he said, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross, which means it's not going to be easy. It's actually going to require something of you. There's going to be something you're going to have to carry. You're going to have to carry a kingdom burden in this life. And it's not going to be about you. If anyone comes after me, you must deny yourself. Take up the kingdom burden, whatever that is. If they're planning at school, take up the burden. Take up the burden. If they're building a work, take up the burden. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I, you see, I, I just don't know. It's just, you know, it's just, it's a little inconvenient for me. American gospel, not kingdom gospel. It's not Christianity. They call it the gospel according to Taylor Swift. It's true. Taylor Swift says she's a Christian, but she supports every immoral thing that the Bible opposes. She's very direct. She says she doesn't believe in Bible-based Christianity, and she doesn't believe in Bible morality, but she says she knows she's right, and she's a Christian. She said, I follow my own compass. She's an apostate? Absolutely, and she's an accuser of the brethren. She's an apostate and an accuser of the brethren. She preaches a gospel that is not Christ, and she points a finger at those who preach the true gospel. She's an accuser of the brethren, and her view is apostate. Twitter that. I'll say it. <laughs> and then tomorrow I'll be like, I said what? <laughs> but I'm on the anointing, so I'll say it. <laughs> this is what's going on in our world. This is what's happening. America is, you know, we were in 10 countries this year. I was at two global events, and, I, and we were ministered in 10 countries. I did eight pastors' conferences this year alone. And one of the things that awakened me is, see, in America, I feel like, hey, I'm varsity. I'm varsity. You know what I'm saying? You know, I I know the level I'm at. I go over there, and I'm like, I got to up my game, man. I got to up my game. I got to up my game. There are guys that are acting at a level and pursuing this kingdom at a level that I am not. 
And I'm like, you're not leaving me behind. I know I can run with you, and I know I can compete with you, and I know I can be, I'm, I know I can be in the arena that you're in. I know I can. And these guys aren't achieving epic standards by, the, by American. But what, what, what you see is this passion within their heart that doesn't exist here. Doesn't exist here. We're dancing in the streets. Woo! We're Jesus. All the time waving gay, transgender flags. Jesus loves us all. Jesus loves us all. <laughs> these guys are on their knees. These guys are praying and crying out and sacrificing and surrendering in great capacity. And you know what's going to happen? The Lord will honor that. And what will happen, and this is hard for Americans to believe, is Christianity will be set aside. It's already going on. It's already going on. I had some dude blast me on YouTube saying, where's the laws? I told him, I said, man, you're trying, they're trying to pass... They're trying to pass laws. They can't do it because of the system of our laws. But they're trying to get to Canada. Will probably, probably, Canada's different than the states. You'll probably see this law come into place in Canada first where you can't proselytize. Israel, you can't proselytize. In other words, you can't witness for Jesus in Israel. You're not allowed. You can't convert anyone in, in Israel. It's illegal. It's illegal. You know? They're trying to pass laws like that in the states. They can't do it. You know, and the guy's like, where's the law? You said there's a law. I said, they're trying to pass laws. Oh, man of 28 followers. That's what they're trying to do. I didn't say they did it. But if you think Christianity is on the upside here, you're wrong. You're wrong. And we look no further than our pulpits, Christian. And we look no further than the appetite of the believer who hungers for that and supports that. And we need to read Timothy. Have we heaped up for ourselves teachers that teach us what we want to hear? Where there's no challenge, there's no change, Christian. This gospel calls you to a standard that's above and beyond your life. If anyone does not deny their mother, father, sister, brother, anybody denies anything and loves anything more than me, they're not what? What's the word? They're not what? Anyone who does not deny everything else but me is not worthy of me. He uses the word worthy. You put anything and everything above what I say, you're not worthy of me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I am. And you're not worthy of me. Many will say to me on that day, many will say to me. When I was a young Christian, I used to think, who's going to do that? What's he talking about? Now, I'm like, oh my gosh. Now, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we dance at the gay pride parade on your behalf? Didn't we do that? Didn't we accept and compromise every moral standard that you laid down in the Bible? Didn't we do that? Didn't we just celebrate you as one among many? Didn't we do that, Lord? And he's going to say, I don't even want. What does he say? I don't, I don't know you. I don't know you. There's a lot of people that think they know Jesus. The question is, is does Jesus know you? The question isn't whether, oh, I know Jesus, I know Jesus. Does he know you? <laughs> That's the question. I, I just shared this last thing, and I'm going to go back to my message. So thank you for my rant. I just, little, I'm just having a little cultural therapy here this morning. It's necessary. It's necessary. We're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If you think the culture is going to give you light, it's not. The devil is the god of this world. 
and he will do everything to destroy what God, he destroys marriages, he destroys gender. Why do you think all of this is happening? He goes after children, and this stuff is happening in your lifetime. Aurora, you, you're, I mean, I'm, I'm from here. You know, have you thought that you would ever see that in your lifetime? Have you seen things in your lifetime that's just shocking to you? That you would never think, you would never think that it was ever going to happen in your lifetime. I've seen stuff in 10 years that I never thought would happen in my lifetime. And it's getting worse and it's moving faster and the church is silent. If the salt loses its savor, it's good for what? We're useless. The church is useless without its salt. Useless. Culturally relevant, but kingdom irrelevant. It's true. It's true. It bothered Nehemiah what was going on. We Say it with me. We change when we're hurting enough to change. You won't change until the pain is to, at, 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 at its upper threshold. Think about that. How many times you go to the dentist when you can't, when you're, you, can't, you can't even open your eye because the pain is hurting too bad? You know what I'm saying? You won't go, ah, that's all right. I can deal with it. Just, you know, a little Novocaine, right? Shot a wild turkey, numb that thing right down. <laughs> but when you got your, your eyeballs like this, you're like, oh, I got to go to the dentist. We change when we're hurting enough to change. It bothered Nehemiah. It bothered Nehemiah that the work wasn't being done. It bothered Nehemiah that God wanted to bring something back into the earth and nobody did anything. It bothered him. And he says he was in despair for days. I lamented for days. <laughs> really? Wow. Imagine the heart of that guy. It bothered him that deeply. Remember, 50,000 went home. And the rest stay. But this guy, it bothered him. It deeply bothered him. What happens to us is God calls us to change. God has a vision. Say it with me. He has a hope and a future for me. In order for us to come there, we've got to look at a couple of things in our life. What happens to us, we have to look and figure out what it is that prevents us from having a vision. One, it could be a misalignment. We should, could be completely misaligned. Our focus could be completely different. Another thing could be the losses in our lives. Losses in your life cause you to despair. And when you've lost enough, you don't want to move forward anymore. Is anybody here? When you've lost enough, you don't feel like moving forward anymore. And we have to look at that. We have to be willing to look at that and look at the despair and the losses and understand and deal with our hopelessness. We fail to see Nehemiah. So what has to happen is God wants to deal with us and he wants to move us forward. But we have to look at why we're not moving forward. Has it because of the losses? Say it with me. Experience, experience. is not the best teacher. The best teacher. Evaluated experience Evaluated. is the best teacher. Experience isn't going to teach you anything if you don't evaluate it. Stupid is as stupid does. You can keep doing it again and again and again and again and again until you figure it out what you're doing wrong. You know, when we have losses, we have to reflect on that. And we have to ask the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit. We have to commune with the Holy Spirit. Lord, what did I miss? What was I not seeing here? What happened here? What's the cause of this? What's, what's going on? And let the Lord evaluate the experience for us. And if he will evaluate the experience for us, we can see what we've done wrong. And then God will give you a hopeful new beginning and enable you to move forward again. A lot of people don't understand what they have in their hand. Nehemiah had a cup in his hand. Nehemiah had influence. Yeah, he realized he had something in his hand. I have a cup. I stand before a king. I have influence. I have the ability to respond. That's what responsibility is, is the ability to respond. 
I have the ability to respond to this situation, and I'm going to. And he responded, and he risked. He risked. Say this with me. A vision requires risk. It's part of the kingdom culture. That's right. Risk and courage is part of the kingdom culture. You must risk. Nehemiah had to risk. He had to walk up to a king who could have killed him. This is a Persian king. Their word was law. You see it in the book of Esther. Whatever the Persian king said, that was law. Babylonians had gone. Now the Persians are in power. Artaxerxes is in power. And he has to, it might have been Darius, but he had to go before the king, and he had to speak to the king. And this king could have killed him. If the king didn't like him, you know, he would have been like, why are you talking to me? Kill this guy. Give me another cupbearer. It could have been just like that. But he listened to Nehemiah. He had to risk, and he had to have the courage to risk. A vision requires courage, and it requires risk. And we don't understand what we have in our hand. And when we don't understand what we have in our hand, we will never change. When we don't understand what we have or we despise what we have, we will never change. Say it with me. If I don't change, nothing will change. Say this. I don't need a better wind. I need the wisdom to set the sail correctly. Many people are waiting for environmental circumstances to go their way. The environmental circumstances may not change for the next 20 years. You cannot need, you don't, that wind is going to be blowing this way. You don't need that wind to change. You need to learn how to set your wind, your sail into the wind that's currently blowing. This is what needs to happen. It's the principle of friction and traction. You can use things can cause friction against you, or you can use things as they are to create traction. It's the, it's the whole idea. It's, it's a principle of momentum. Principle versus, it's uh, traction versus friction. Another story. What do you have in your hand? People despise what they have in their hand. Every single one of you has seed in season. Doesn't matter where you are sitting right now, you have seed and you have season. Seed may be monetary, that's part of it. You have intellect, you have skill, you have ability, that's seed. You also have the greatest seed of all, which every one of you, no matter where you are, you have it. It's called time. Time is your seed that if invested correctly in the season you're in, will transform your season. Time, you're in a winter season. You've lost everything. You don't know what you're going to do. You take the seed of time and you invest and you lay the groundwork and you lay the plans and you invest in yourself and you prepare yourself for the inevitability of spring because spring is coming. You can't change everything around you, but you can change you. You don't have the power over everything around you, but you have the power over you. And you can invest in yourself. You can change the way that you think. You can change your perspective. You can change your, habit, your habits. You can change your habitudes, the things that you do, the attitude that you do things with. You can change all of that, all of that. That seed that you possess, no matter what season you're in. You, winter, winter, people think winter is a terrible season. Winter is one of the most advantageous seasons of all. Because winter is when you can learn, winter is when you can grow, and winter is when you can plan for the next spring that's going to come. Spring always follows winter, Christian. For the last 2,000 plus years, spring has come winter. Genesis mandate. Genesis is one of the key books in all of the Bible. They're all great. But Genesis is, always points to his original intent. And one of the things in Genesis says, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest, summer and winter. As long as the earth remains, there will be seed and season. That is a principle of transformation. And most people can't even see it. But it's right there. 
God gives you the ability to change and transform with seed and season, no matter what you have. And you grow and you plan and you prepare. Your spring will come. Your opportunity will come. And you sow into that time. You give into that time. You change. I'll, I'll get, I can do it with money. Let's do it with relationships. Everybody want me to do it with relationships? Let's do it with marriages. You're, my marriage is in a winter. I'm in a winter season. It's horrible. The snow's falling. The ice is packed. I don't know when this is ever going to end. The wind's whipping through. I don't even know. Change you. Change you. You have seed. Change you. Evaluate your life. Well, it's not my problem. It's my spouse's problem. If my spouse would change, everything would change. You can't change your spouse, but you can change you. You can't change your children, but you can change you. You don't need, you don't, you got to get better. You can get better, you can get better. You need to get better. We all need to get better. You can't change what he does. You can't change what she does, but you can change you and you can evaluate it. You know, you may not, you might even be 60 40. Your spouse might be 60% of the problem, but I can guarantee you, you're a high 40. You're a high 40. The way you've approached it, what you've allowed in your marriage, let's just hold it right there, what you've allowed. You're responsible for what you've allowed. Women are like, my husband leads, my husband leads, my husband's in charge, my husband's in charge. No, lady, you let that in your house. You allowed that. And my wife doesn't take no crap from me. I mean, she says she takes crap from me, but I'm like, yeah, she doesn't take it. She doesn't, she has a standard. No, it's for real. She doesn't, she doesn't tolerate things. She does not tolerate certain things if it's out of balance. She doesn't put up with it. She doesn't put up with it. And so when the woman says, oh, I'm just a victim, you're far from the victim. You've been given the power of influence. Seed in season. You're in winter. Change. Look, reflect. What am I doing here? What am I allowing in this marriage that is creating this conflict? What am I allowing? What am I not speaking up for? What am I not speaking against? What am I tolerating? What am I afraid of? Well, I'm afraid he's going to leave me. Well, girl, you got a nightmare right now. How much worse can it be? No, for real. No, we have to look at this and we have to change. You have to say, okay, I'm going to sow the seed. I'm going to make myself better. I'm going to communicate differently. I'm, not, I'm going to change the standard for what I allow, especially towards myself. You will not talk to me that way. You will not disrespect me like that. I will not do that to you and I will not disrespect you, but I will not put up with it from you either. Too close? Is that too close? Seed in season. We allow these things to happen. I'm no longer going to speak to my husband in the way that I, that I speak to him. I'm no longer going to speak to my wife in the way that I lead. You know, you know, people ask me, I'll give you this one. We're on marriage, and marriage is always a good subject. People like marriage, so let's go for it. They ask me, like, I've been married 32 years. They're like, what, what is, I have had people ask me, what, how do you stay married that long? It's really simple. It's called change. Marriages fail when one or both parties refuse to change. It's 100% true. I've had to change for her. Well, that's just the way it is. That's what you married. Well, it won't be for long, mister. I'm, I'm assuring you that. You might, make, you might squeeze 10 years out of it, and you might build the bitterness up to 10 years, but that tree's coming down whether you want it to or not. It's going to happen. You, you can only bury so much stuff. Over time, it's going to come out. You've got to change. You can transform a marriage. You can transform your child. You can transform your, your finances. You can transform your future if you learn to use seed and season. And I'm going to sow a different seed. 
I'm going to sow a different seed. I'm going to speak kindly, even when I'm disrespected. And when I'm disrespected, I'm going to correct when I'm disrespected. That's the seeds I'm going to sow. In the summer, I'm going to protect it. Summer is I'm going to hold the, I'm going to hold the line. Summer is when you hold the line. Summer is all about defending the crop that's in the ground and nurturing what you've sown. And I'm going to keep the standard. I'm not compromising the standard. And eventually the harvest will come. The harvest will come. If I will use my seed and I will use my season. You can do the same thing with money. <laughs> you've blown money. Okay. What did you do wrong? Evaluate it. What, did, what can you do differently? Seed and season. You sow, you invest, you protect, you harvest. Same principle. Is this helping anybody? <laughs> it's true. Listen, I've changed. I've changed. You think a snake changes its skin? You have no idea. My wife, if I don't want to change, she just grabs me. She starts ripping the skin off me. You're going to change. She's changed too. She's changed too. She's changed too. I have to give her credit. She's changed too. We're not the same people that we were. We're not. We're not. But to say you don't have to change, you won't be married. I don't care who you marry. I don't, I don't care who you marry. You get married five times. You're going to have the same problem again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And the unmarried that think they're idealistic and think that's not the way it's going to be, that is exactly the way it's going to be. It's exactly the way it's going to be. You're going to have to change. You're going to have to change or not, right? Another story. I won't get too deep, more further into marriage. But anyway, he knew what he had in his hand. Jesus' dream became his dream. He aligned it, right? So what happens here, so that's what happened with Nehemiah. Nehemiah realized he had something in his hand. Nehemiah said, look, I need to align my life with what God wants. I'm, I'm out of order here. This is what God wants. I have the ability to respond to this. I'm going to respond. David did the same thing. David wanted to build God a house. He knew the Lord had a vision. He said, this is God's vision. God, the Lord wants to do this. So let's again look at that. 95% of the Christians stayed in, or the believers stayed in probably more than that, stayed in Babylon. Only a fraction of them responded to God's call to build. David's the same way. Nobody wants to do anything. He's like, man, the Lord needs a temple, man. We got to put this temple in the ground. And he says, I'm going to build a temple. And the prophet's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. And then the Lord wakes the prophet up in the middle of the night and says, uh, you didn't ask me, bro. So you need to go back to David and correct what you told him. And so Nathan goes back to David and says, listen, the Lord doesn't want you to build his house because you have too much blood on your hands. David was a warrior. David took kick butt and took names. I mean, he took it down. He rid the land. What Israel failed to do, David accomplished. That's why that was the golden age, because David rid the nation of all of its enemies. Spiritual warfare, no devil in my house, no devil in my land. All of the demonic and influences, he was on a hunt. He went after the Nephilim and the Raphaim, right? All of the, the sons of the giants. What, Goliath wasn't only one of the sons of the giants. There were multiple sons of the giants. David went after them, and he, he did them all, and he wants to build the Lord a house. And the Lord's like, you can't do it, David. He's like, you got blood on your hands. I'll let your son do it. Your son will be a man of peace, and my house will reflect peace, you know? And he said, but you won't do it. But he says this to David. This is one of the most beautiful things. God said some amazingly beautiful and intimate things to David. Some of the things he said to David were so personable. You don't even see it with Moses, but you see it with David. He, we know that he talked to Moses that way because he said he did. But you don't see, God didn't reveal it in his word. With David, you see it. And he says, because you want to do this for me, David. 
Jesus says, because you want to do this for me. No one else wants to do this for me, but you do. No one else has asked me. I didn't ask anybody to do it, but nobody else even had me in their heart. Everybody's only concerned about what I can do for them. But you want to do something for me, David? You want to do something for me. Because you want to do this, I will give you peace with all your enemies. <laughs> and I, the Lord, tell you that I will build your house. What you do with the Lord, he makes happen for you. When you build Jesus' house, he builds your house. <laughs> this is essential. The only thing Jesus is building in time and space is the Kaleo. It's the church. It's the only thing he's building. And Christians miss it. I think they let the devil deceive them. They fail to build the house of God. And in doing so, what they're really doing is robbing themselves of a blessing and a promise that God makes to their house. You put faith on it. Lord, I'm going to give. Above and beyond, I'm going to give my offering to support the church, but I'm going, to give to, I'm going to give to the rise and build. And I'm going to put faith on it. And I'm going to believe, Lord, that as I make this effort and this faith to build your house, that you will build mine. My children will be in ministry. This is what I believe, Lord. My marriage will be reconciled. This is what I believe, Lord. My sons and daughters and my ancestors will not run afar. They will all know you. You will build a legacy for me as I build this legacy with you. And you know what Jesus does? He strikes hands. They don't understand. God's a deal maker. He strikes hands. You see this over and over again in the scripture. It's part of his nature. He likes to make a deal. He loves it. He lo Prove me. Talk to me. Let's negotiate here. Right? I shared the story first service. We're talking about tithes and offerings. And, you know, 18% of the church gives. I had a woman one time tell me, I know this woman really well. And she said, I need a certain amount of money to give a tithe. I said, how much do you need? She said, if I could make $100,000, she said, I would be able to give the full tithe. I said, you know what's going to happen? I said, what, do you, what can you give now? And she said, 2 3%. I said, give the 3%. And I said, and put faith on it. And I said, tell the Lord, when he gives you $100,000, you're going to give the full tithe. Do you know what happened within two years? Anybody know? That's right. And you know what I told her? It's not an issue of whether or not God gives you the money. He'll give it to you. Because I've seen it happen multiple times. But you know what I see every single time? When the person gets it, they fail to honor their commitment to the Lord. I had a guy one time tell me I need a million-dollar contract to save my business. If I get a million-dollar contract and I have this, con you know, he's telling me all this stuff. He's, a guy got a $975,000 contract, contract in the first year. I told him, I said, start tithing from your business. Don't just give your money personally. I said, use your business and start giving out of your business and put faith on the offering and tell the Lord that what you want. He got a $975,000 contract the first year. Yeah, but wait for the story. It gets better. I had lunch with him after that. Yeah, we're celebrating. It was a big national contract, big firm, sitting down with him, clapping hands with him. Then he sits down with me, and he says to me, um, the Lord's told me I don't have to give anymore. I, I didn't care. I mean, it wasn't like he was giving. I, I didn't know what the guy's giving was or anything like that. But I told him. I remember I said, you believed God for this. I said, you need to honor the commitment that you made to the Lord. And he's like, oh, the Lord, I already talked to the Lord about that. He told me I don't have to give anymore. Do you know what happened? What do you think happened? He lost it all. He lost it all. He lost it all. God gives it to you if he can get it through you. And because I need a million dollars. I'm like, man, come into reality. That's what I told this person. I said, come into reality. I said, what does it take to get you into obedience to the full tithe? I said, what does it take? I said, tell him. Tell him. A million dollars, Jesus doesn't deal with stupid. He deals with reality. 
He knows you don't need a million dollars, and so do you. You know you don't need a million dollars. You know that. What will it take for you, the minimum amount, for God to bless you so that you can give the full 10%? What is it? What is it? Give where you're at. Some of you can give right now. You should do it. You should be in full. T- you should be full. Look, I give all the time. Give all the time. I shared first service. I don't want to keep saying this, but the guy told me I should say it, so I'm like, I'll say it. He said, Sharon, I gave 18% last year. 18%. I didn't give 10%. I gave 18%. Right? You know what I was mad about? I didn't give 20. <laughs> so I, I'm not using this as some kind of thing towards you that I'm exempt from because I'm not exempt. I give the offering, I give the offering too. <laughs> and my point is, is that God will bless you. And this person that I'm talking about, I talked with her and she said, you know, I'm believing God for this much so that I can give this much. She told me that. She said, I'm believing for a higher number so I can give this much. And you know what's going on? She's up for a promotion. Oh, yeah. This is how the kingdom works, Christian. This is how it works. But most Christians are, are like Ananias and Sapphira. We act like we give and we really don't. You understand? We pretend. That was their sin, is they pretended. They acted like they give. They lied. Oh, we're such givers. Oh, yes, we're such givers. And they weren't. They weren't at all. Peter said, you didn't have to give anything. But now you're acting like you gave it, and you're lying. You're not lying to these people. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. That's the problem. Believe God above and beyond. What you do with the Lord, he will make happen for you. It's not even about monetary. What if God delivered your children? What's that worth to you? Anybody here with kids? What is it worth to you? How much would you pay to see your children delivered? How much would you pay to see your children walking in with the Lord fully? What's that worth to you? Huh? What if God imposed this covenantal right that he gave to David? What you do for me, I'll do for you. I'll build you a house. I'll do something amazing for you. Hmm. Just a thought. I won't get into that. I'll skip down here. A vision is to see as Jesus sees. Jesus sees potential. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to work this out. But, you know, we can walk in the spirit or we can walk in the flesh. It's up to us as Christians. It's up to us. I keep wanting to skip this. The Lord's like, go back there. Go back there. I'm like, it's just my little world that I deal with up here, second service. So you, you can follow the ways of a culture. You can follow the ways of a kingdom. The choice is yours. The choice is really yours. It really is. You know, and we can become kingdom culture Christians or we can be culture culture Christians. But that, that's really the choice that we have as believers. We get to choose which way we walk in. God's ways are not cultural ways. God's ways are completely counterintuitive to our own ways. They, they don't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But we do it anyway. So what happens here, so let me just see that, share this with you. In... Uh, in the book of Isaiah, which is the same thing, what happens with Nehemiah is that Nehemiah comes before the Lord and seeks the Lord's vision and wants God to give him a direction as to what he's supposed to do. This is what he's asking. Nehemiah's like, okay, Lord, I have a position. I have an influence. What do you want me to do? I have the ability to respond to this or I have the heart to respond to this. What do you want me to do? And that's Nehemiah chapter one. He repents three times in seven verses. Staggering. He repents three times in seven verses. It's like, I've sinned, My, the, the people have sinned, our ancestors have sinned, we've all sinned. 
You know, none of us are right. He repents three times in seven verses. He resets. He's where he's been wrong. He accounts for where he has been wrong. And he resets and he repositions himself. It's crazy. Jesus does the same thing in the book of Isaiah. Watch this one. On the backside of repentance, the book of Isaiah chapter 58, the people have repented. God is saying, if you will repent and if you will change and if you will just just do these simple things. Stop pursuing your own selfish gain. Stop accusing everybody around you. Stop being greedy. Stop calling my worship a burden. This is what he's saying. All things that Christians do, right? He says, stop pointing with the finger and striking at the fist. Stop blaming everybody around you and stop being, including me. Stop calling my Sabbath a burden. Oh, I gotta go to church. Oh, man. I don't want to go to church. Stop calling my Sabbath a burden. Stop calling my gathering a burden. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's David's attitude. He said, stop pointing with the finger. Stop accusing. Stop calling my bad and burden. Then he tells him, stop being stingy and stop being greedy. He said, if you will do this, then he kicks off into 11. Watch what he gives. Watch what he gives. For that simple change, if you will just do these simple changes, I will do this. Isaiah 58, 11. I will guide you continually. Right? I will continually guide you. But wait, there's more. I will satisfy your soul in drought. Everybody else will be in drought and will not have the satisfaction within their soul. But I will satisfy you. And I will strengthen your bones you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Just happening, man. Never thirsty, always flowing. Those among you shall build the waste places. The arenas of your life where there's been wasted will bloom. Will waste place. Anybody got any waste places in your life? Is there any area of your life you can look at and you go, wow, I wish I could fix that? Anybody, anybody like that? Anybody at all? Right? God says, I will take your waste places. I will restore your waste places. He's actually implying that others will do it for you. How about that one? Huh? There's another one where he says, uh, those that you do not know will work your fields. That's, that's a great one, too. Those among you will build your waste places. You will raise up the foundation of many generations. Some of you come from broken families where there's, there's nothing but lost potential. If you look down your family line... On both sides, you just see wasted potential and loss. The Lord says, if you will correct yourself with me, I'll use you to build up the foundations of all of those wasted generations. You. I'll start a brand new legacy. I'll start a brand new line. I'll do something completely different, right? You will be so different from what you have been and what everybody else is. I will change it all, and I will raise you up. And you will harvest the potential of all of their generations. All of the foundational potential that they left lying in the field, that they did nothing with, you'll build upon it. I'll give it to you. He not only does that to individuals, he will do that to a church. He will do that to a community. Miami has had foundations that have never been built upon. There's never been, this, this city is one of the, I, I dare say I can't find another class A city where there's never been a revival. 
There's never been a massive Jesus movement in the history of Miami, ever. You can find it in New York. You can find it in New Jersey. You can find it in Chicago. You can find it in Seattle. You can find it in L.A. about five times over, and L.A. is about as leftist as they come. You can find it in San Diego. You can find it in Texas. You can find it all over the world. Alabama, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, Detroit revivals. You can find revivals everywhere, but you not find anything in the history of this city where there was a Jesus movement ever, ever. Do your research. There was never a move of Christ in epic scale where you saw hundreds of people coming to Jesus. It just didn't happen. Grand Rapids, Michigan, because it was a revival. You, can, you know where you find them is where you find the Bible schools. When you find universities and big, big Christian universities, that's where a revival was. Grand Haven, Michigan, massive. Everywhere you find these big schools, all of the Pacific, Azusa Street, you know, Northwest Pacific universities, because what happened is that there was such a movement of revival. People came to Christ and their churches were growing that they had to establish schools and training centers. Is there a, is there a seminary in Miami anywhere? Not at all. Not at all. We've got to make one. The seminaries and the Bible schools in this city are relative. Calvary, not if you're a Calvary Chapel person, but there's a Bible school there. Do you know why? Because there was a Jesus movement. Huh? There was a Jesus movement. Fort Lauderdale's had a Jesus movement. Pensacola's had a Jesus movement. Jacksonville's had a Jesus movement. Miami's never had one. Never had one. How about that one, intercessors? Hmm? How about that one? Praying that God would do that and that we would be a part of that. I had someone from our speaking tell us that, um, that um, a prophetic word, and they said God was going to, there was a revival that was going to come out of Miami and it was going to spread across the world and that God was going to use us. Yeah, there's been prophetic words many times. Many times. She got, we had a guy last week saying there's going to be a movement in the city of Miami and God's going to use this church. Uh, she was at a, um, uh, a movement with, uh, was it Rodney Hogue that told you that? Who was it? Rodney Hogue. Randy. Uh, well, Randy, yeah, but he's with Randy Clark. But Randy, Rodney Hogue uh, told Sherry, he said, um, God has planted a move with you and it's in the ground. Yeah. He said, it's in the ground. It's in the ground. I'm like, all right. Let it rain. Um, but we've had that word many times, many times. I, I guess even taking my own advice, you know, <laughs> aligning with that vision. What does that look like, Lord? Where do we pray? How do we pray into that? What, are the, what, what do we do? You know, I mean, the things that we're doing are correct. Even doing what we, the, you know, the Arise and Build project, it is correct. It is correct. Wouldn't you like to see something that never happened before? Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to see that? It's never happened here before, ever. Ever. We're a gateway city. You're, the Lord's name is in the, name, in the middle of our city. I am. M-I-A-M. My am. His name is in the center of our city. It means his presence. The key to the city is the presence of the Lord. It's called the magic city. There's more witchcraft here than any other city in the country. People talk about witchcraft in their city. I'm always, nobody can compete with the 305. Nobody. I'm like, you got dead chickens in the street? Oh, we do. My son was just walking to the store, and he crossed the railroad tracks. And he said, Dad, there's a goat's head with a bag of entrails sitting on the railroad tracks. He just told me that. And he said, and there's two bird's wings laying there, too. He just called me on the phone when he was walking to the gas station. A goat head cut in half. He said, the eyes are gouged out, and there's a bag of entrails sitting on the railroad tracks. Because it's always on crossroads, and it's always on uh, passageways. They always put the witchcraft on passageways and crossroads. 
Meridians, yeah, meridian lines. I always do it like that. And I just said, dude, dude, don't touch it. It's, it's too far from my house, but if you see me walking down the street with a bottle of Crisco, you know where I'm going. Right? I'm going to go down there in the name of Jesus. I used to do it in my house, man. Right? We lived there in little, little, near little Haiti. We had rich craft on the corner all the time. There was a sewer lid because we lived on a corner house, and there was a sewer lid, and they would put um, Santeria right on, the, right, on the, right on the sewer lid. I woke up in the middle of the night one night. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. Pfft, witchcraft on the corner. Literally, I woke up. I walk out there, and there's a bowl full of all kinds of goo and crap. I put rubber gloves on. I throw it in the garbage, and I'm walking outside with a jar of olive oil. I'm like, not on my corner, <laughs> devil. <laughs> if you go there on 81st Street, you'll probably still see a ring of oil that's still it's, it's seeped into the asphalt. Yeah, for real. There used to be a ring of oil around that. Yeah, for sure. Nobody competes with the 305 on that level. There's witchcraft in this city. Do you know why? Because the power is supposed to come here. The devil opposes what's manifested. The destiny of this city is kingdom power. I'm telling you now. It's Holy Spirit power. Why do you think witchcraft seats itself here? Because God comes, the devil comes in opposition to what God wants to do. He comes to oppose in direct proportion to what God wants to do. So he manifests all of this witchcraft and creates this circumference atmosphere with all of these things. Oh, that's what he's doing. So could it be that the kingdom power is what this, what this city is looking for? Is it the key? Is it the key? It's true. It's true. Come on. Let's be a part of something. Let's be a part of something. Be a part of it. Be a part of what Elevate is doing. Connect to what we're doing. Challenge you. I challenge you to commit. Connect to be a part of this church. I challenge you to be a part of a rise and build. I'm gonna, you're going to hear this over and over again. We want to create connection. We want to create calling through connection. This is just a couple of quick things of how we do things here. we got to um, discover Elevate on the 16th if you want to know more about the church. Um, but some of our values, we create calling through connection. And what is the connection? Through the corporate gathering, through the corporate vision, and through life groups. There's so many people here who've risen and have had things come out of their lives simply because they connected to this church and got involved at some level. They're seeing things come out of their lives and becoming something in their life that, that was never there before. Calling comes through connection. Connection is always through the local church. Our, our philosophy is on earth as it is in heaven. It's that we have an adjustment into transfor transformational thinking. We don't think on a natural plane. We think on a, on a supernatural plane. That's, that's our goal. Our goal is not to think average and common. Our goal is to think on earth as it is in heaven, to see as he sees, to understand as he understands, to do as he does. Our, we're naturally supernatural, and I believe that's what this city needs. I had a worship leader, that guy was sitting there playing one time, and he said, remember, I don't know if you guys were here, this guy's name was James. He used to play with his hand his, up on the speaker. You remember James? Yeah. You remember James? Yeah, yeah. He could sing like Phil Wickham. The problem was it was all about him, right? It was like literally a Phil Wickham concert every time, every time this guy would play. But the problem was is that we're a worship team. We're not a worship individual. But he would sing, but he, he'd sing, and he'd put his foot up there. He's like, hey, I was praying this week, guys. And I was praying, and the Lord showed me that his name is right in the city of Miami. He's like, his name I am is right in the city of Miami. And it, nobody else got that. But that I, he said that, and my head went back. Because I'd been praying and asking the Lord, what is the key to this city? What is every city in the Bible had a key? You see that when these cities were reached and connected, every city, Philippi was prayer, right? 
Ephesus was, was uh, repentance. You see these cities, and they opened up, and each one of them opened up in different ways. They all opened up in different ways. Corinth was spiritual gifts. That city came alive through the spiritual gifts, right? Philippi was a church built on prayer that, that affected the whole region. Thessalonica, the key was good works, good deeds. That's what they did. Each city had a key that caused the city to awake, caused the city to awaken. And so I'd been praying, and I felt like the Lord was saying, presence, Kevin, presence. I am is my presence. Yeah? It's right there. And then the magic city. I'm like, well, that one's there. So anyway, I want to challenge you to be part of it. Um, we want you to have, discover purpose through prayer. Uh, rise and build. We had $256,000 in commitments. We had $256,000 in commitments. Yeah, you should clap for that. Yeah, we have almost 60000 collected. In a week. In a week. I was part of a church that was about our size. It took them about three years to raise a half a million dollars. Three years. We raised it in commitments in, 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 in one, one week. I think there's a, and if you're not a part of a rise and build, you need to be part of a rise and build. Sherry's got cards. You can download the app, throw the app up there. If you go to the app, you can fill out the, the commitment card. It's an 18-month commitment. We're not, you know, if you want to give lump sum, that's fine too. But you, can, but you know, you can do the the 18-month commitment. Not everybody can do everything, but you can do something. We can all do something. We can all do something. We can make a commitment to be a part of something that God wants to do. You can do monthly. You can do one time in 18 months. You know, there's all kinds of options. But we're asking you to ask the Lord what He would have you to give. That's what we want. What does the Lord want you to give? What does he want you to be a part of and be a part of this? We're trying to raise a half a million dollars. We're going to do it, and we're going to have it in 18 months. I believe we're going to have it sooner. I believe we'll be looking for property within 12 months. That's my goal. You say, that's crazy faith. Well, that is crazy faith. We're all in on this, so we believe in God for this. We want you to be a part of it. We want you to be a part of something significant. It should be a part of something that will grow and something that can impact the city and can impact the county as a, as a, as a whole. Amen? Amen? All right. So if you're a part of this church, we want you to be a part of the vision of this church. You can download the app. You got words to app. Throw that app card up there, Alex. You can download the app. On the app, you have a pledge card. Um, should be under right. You just peruse it. There's all kinds of, you'll you figure it out. I, I haven't completely figured it out. We're still adding to it. But the pledge card's on there. You can also give through the app. You can give regular giving through the app. And you can do automated giving if you want to be a part of a Rise and Build. You can do that as well. It's all there for you. Um, the app is important. We're going to be using it as a communication tool. So a lot of the life groups and a lot of the messaging is going to be coming through the app. It's really good. If you want to watch the message, all you got to do is go on your phone, hit the app. Boom, right there's the message. Right up top. You don't have to go to YouTube. You don't have to go to Facebook. You don't have to go to, you know, wherever it is where else we're streaming it. You don't have to go there. You can just hit the app and go there. If you want to find out what's going on with the life groups, we'll have, get, we'll have the connection information for the life groups. When the streaming groups are on, hopefully we can even connect the groups through the app. There'll be things like that. We're going to have a membership section. Um, so that's another vision. There's other, there's other pieces to this that are going to be added uh, to the app. So we're pretty excited about it. It's, um, it's something we've been working on for a few months, and, you know, we got it going. So I want you guys to be a part of that as well. And you get a free gift. All you got to do is go see Shelly, and Shelly's going to get you a free gift because Shelly has nothing better to do than to give you a free gift. But she loves to give gifts. 
You get an Elevate Miami Church keychain just for downloading the app. How cool is that? She picked the gift. She loves to give. She's like, Pastor Kev, we got to have a gift for these apps. So people have to have that. I'm like, they need a gift? He's like, yeah. She's like, yeah, if they download the app, they need a gift. I'm like, well, what are you thinking? She's like, I don't know. I'll have to go get back to you. Then she comes back to me and she's like, I think we give them a keychain. I said, all right, Shelly, we'll give them a keychain. <laughs> so if you want to know what to get Shelly for Christmas, she likes keychains and ballpoint pens. She really likes ballpoint pens. Anyway, so, all right, that's it. So we're going to have a prayer team available for you this morning. I just want to keep going on the vision track. We're going to keep talking a little bit more about vision, and, uh, but I'm going to bless you. We have fire starters this afternoon, and we'll just pray, and we'll end. I'm already over time, so I don't want to take it any further. So let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may the Lord give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.